Hi again, I'm Jack Lesenberry, and welcome or welcome back to Politics and Prejudices, the podcast. For many years, I wrote a nationally award-winning column, Politics and Prejudices, for the Detroit Metro Times. The essays on both commercial and public radio, and this podcast is a combination of both. It's a new era. I'm so modern, I'm getting a new ribbon for my electric typewriter soon. By the way, I'm still doing a lot of writing, columns, essays. You can view some of my work and listen to past and uh, new essays and podcasts and other stories on my website and blog, LessonberryInc.com. It's ink as an ink pen. I've been around a while, covered stories in a lot of different countries and states, and met a lot of fascinating people. And the purpose of this podcast is to bring some of them and their stories to you. Plus, give you my unique, hopefully well-informed, and sometimes snarky take on things. By the way, I also plan to end most of these podcasts with my signature essays, so please sit back and listen or assume whichever posture you find most comfortable. Hope you enjoyed today's show, and please follow me also on my blog, as I said, LessonBerryInc.com. I'd also love to hear from you in terms of a message on Facebook or to my blog. Now for today's topic. Have you ever heard anyone say that our politicians are bought and paid for? Well, I hate to say this, but they are. Not in the sense of taking bribes directly, although there's a Michigan legislator named Larry Inman who's now under federal indictment for doing just that. But the cost of campaigns for even minor offices has become astronomical. Candidates have to have campaigns willing to spend several times the salary the officeholder receives just to be competitive. And while trading donations for a specific vote is illegal, it stands to reason that if national, the National Rifle Association or Planned Parenthood contrib- contributes to a campaign, recipient has a pretty good idea of what they want, as well as an idea of what they need to do to get another donation next time. Most of us also know that the U.S. Supreme Court, in its Citizens United decision almost 10 years ago, ruled that there could be essentially no limits on campaign spending. But in Michigan, if you know the ropes, you can often give to a campaign without the candidate having to disclose where the money comes from. Not knowing who funds your elected leaders doesn't strike me as being good for democracy. There's a small band of heroes working hard to find out that information and share it with us. It's called the Michigan Campaign Finance Network. It's nonprofit, nonpartisan, and they're working full-time to try to shine as much light as possible on how money is affecting our politics. Joining us today is a man who works full-time at doing just that. Craig Mauger has been our executive director of the Michigan Campaign Finance Network for almost four years now. Before that, he was an award-winning reporter who covered the legislatures in both Michigan and Indiana. There should be some kind of purple hearts, I think, for that. And also, a very impressive woman who's now a member of his board, Ellen Cogan Lipton is the only chemist I know who has a Harvard Law degree. She's a patent lawyer who's also served three terms in the Michigan legislature. There, she was instrumental in uncovering corruption and wrongful spending in the Detroit schools. Last year, however, she raised and spent more than a million dollars in a failed attempt to win a nomination for Congress. Four years before, she raised about a quarter of a million in an attempt to win a state Senate nomination. To most of us, these seem like crazy sums, but it gets worse. In more and more races, much of the spending is so-called dark money that the general public can't even trace. So how do we find out about who's funding our politicians, and what, if anything, can we do about it? The good news is we have a couple people here today who know as much as anyone about the answers. Alan Lipton, Craig Mauger, thanks for making time for us today. And again, I want to get, give you a plug. If you want to see what Craig is doing, you can check up on him. It's mf, mcfn.org, mcfn.org, their website. And it's one of the first things I check out and read almost every day, especially if I need a reason to be depressed. So, <laughs> Craig, tell us, about, tell us about Michigan Campaign Finance Network and how it was started and 
You know, what's your prime directive, as they used to say in Star Trek? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the Michigan Campaign Finance Network has been around for about 20 years now. A lot of people are surprised by that, but this organization's been around for a while. Our prime directive is to follow the money in state politics. That's what we spend our time doing. That's what we're passionate about. That's what we raise money to go out and do so we can inform the public about the increasing influence of money in state politics. There's more money being raised by candidates. There's more money being spent by lobbyists, and it's becoming an important part of the story of how government works. And if you don't understand how the money is influencing politics right now, you don't really understand how government's working. I think that's absolutely true. Now, Ellen Kogan Lipton, I guess you're a recovering politician. Correct. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you, I should say, you were a very distinguished state legislator. You were the person who really, you spent your own time and some of your own money to expose that Governor Snyder's alternative school district for the Detroit Public Schools was essentially a fraud, wasn't working, and they ended up closing it down. Then then you, you failed in competitive races for the nomination for the state Senate and then for Congress. And... You found out just about how much money you have to run, you raise in order to run. Right. It's it's really sobering. And um, it's really it's really sad because that in and of itself is causing so many really passionate and high quality candidates from ever putting their toe into the the political arena. Um, so many good people, you know, will call me and say you know, is this really what you have to raise, you know, to run for, for thus and such? And right. sometimes, you know, I want to sort of paint a rosy picture and say, well, but you have to give them the truth. And unfortunately for a lot of people, that is, it's just daunting. And mm -hmm. so they say, you know what, it's a system that I can't even be a part of. That, and that's really, it's really a tragedy. It's happened to me countless times. People come to me and think I know something and say, I'm thinking about running for the legislature. I'm thinking about running for Congress. I'll say, you got a couple million bucks. They look at me like I'm the man in the moon, and that's what it takes. How did, before I get back to Craig, you, I think you raised more than a million dollars in your congressional primary. How yeah. do you do that? How do you raise a million bucks? And it was, and it had to have been done in a very, very short period of time because right. there's this pressure to show your strength early on by right. certain filing deadlines. Um, and it literally amounted to me in literally a basement, um, no windows, um, a series of phone dialers, um, and just for eight, nine, ten hours a day for months on end, calling people and trying to implore them um, to believe in you and, and, and give you money. And of course you start off with people that you know, right? but very quickly, um, you have to go to complete and total strangers. That sounds like, a, like almost as much fun as being an unpaid worker for a telemarketer, <laughs> except I think they have windows some of the time. So, yeah. so, so Craig, um, have you turned up clear evidence that the spending kind of warps our government? I think uh, we try to look at individual instances and to show specific cases where money is having an influence or it appears to be having an influence on, on policy decisions. And I'd throw a couple of examples out there. You mentioned one in your opening. You were talking about the Larry Inman right. case where he is now being charged with allegedly um, trying to extort money from some building trades organizations. Mr. Inman was not subtle. He sent text messages apparently saying, give me the money and, I, and I'll vote for you. 
It, it was something similar to that. He was right. trying to get thirty thousand dollars in right. campaign contributions before this very key vote about uh, wage standards for public construction projects, which is a right. huge priority of the building trades. Uh, he ultimately, uh, according at least to the campaign finance disclosures that we can see, did not get this $30,000, and he ended up not voting with the building trades. And this was a huge uh, issue. I mean, this is right. something that people have been debating for many years in the, the state The governor capital. was on one side, the legislature on the other. Yeah, Rick Snyder was uh, opposed to this legislation, and they went around him and circulated petitions, and then it went through. But this is a case where he cast one of two key votes that basically decided this, right. this matter, and there was this huge lobbying effort to try to get him from, from both sides of the aisle. So, I mean, that's, that's one example. I think there's more systemic examples where you have groups. Uh, one we looked at in 2018 was there was a nonprofit called Citizens for Energizing Michigan's Economy. It spent about $900,000 on state legislative races, primary races, general election races. It appears that most of the group's money was coming from Consumers Energy, and it was targeted at getting uh, lawmakers out of the legislature who had opposed the utilities on some major policy uh, proposals. I mean, so that's an example where you, you have to wonder what is the impact of that spending by the nonprofit going forward on lawmakers who are thinking, so if I go against the utilities, is this nonprofit going to show up in my district and start running ads against me? These, these are the kind of things we monitor. And as I should say, I should say, Larry Inman, of course, has pleaded not guilty. and He said he was under the influence of opioids and, and everybody's uh, considered presumed innocent, blah, blah, blah. But in most cases, the lawmaker, it's, it's not as blatant as that where this kind of thing goes on, correct? Right, and, right. and it, gets a little bit, it gets a little bit insidious because it can start even before you actually take your seat. So when the caucuses are creating the committees, me, you know, sort of a person of logic is thinking that, oh, you know, it's based on your experience. Okay, I have an experience in science, so perhaps a committee that deals with science would be relevant. No, no, no. People are oftentimes put on committees um, based on their ability or need to raise money quickly. So a competitive seat that is going to cost a lot of money, oftentimes that person will be put on a lucrative committee like health policy right. without mm. having any background in the health sciences or the banking committee without having any knowledge of basic mathematics or accounting. Um, and so it, it, that type of pressure is sort of instilled in members, particularly from competitive seats, to use their committees, wink, wink, nod, nod, in terms of who you're going to be dealing with, a.k.a. the lobby corps, um, to raise money based on where you're put. And that's very, very well known. And this affect you. I mean, you, you live in Huntington Woods, as do I, and it's a safe, the district is a safe Democratic district as pre, pre, presently drawn. So does that affect what the committees you got on once you got there? Thankfully, no. Um, and I made it very clear that my need to raise money, and, you know, people from safe seats are expected to contribute to the caucus, um, would be based on you know, just hard work and traditional fundraising, and that the committees that I am put on would have to be based on my knowledge of those committees. Um, but in my last term, I did serve on the Committee on Committees, and I had committee this... Committee on Committees, I like that. <laughs> so I had this grandiose uh, knowledge or this vision that I would interview uh, people and find out what their skill set was and put them on committees based on their interests 
and on their past knowledge, and I was quickly shot down and told that that's not the way things work. Mm. Now, Craig, you don't just cover uh, who donates to campaigns. I've been reading a very intriguing story on mcfn.org about lobbyists and how much these legislators get in free meals, and it's sort of eye-opening. Thousands and thousands of dollars, individual legislatures uh, who have to report this. Do the lobbyists report it or do the legislators? So under our current uh, state laws, the lobbyists are in charge of, of reporting, you know, trips they fund for state lawmakers, meals to a certain extent that they, they purchase for, for state lawmakers. And in uh, the first seven months of 2019, they've purchased over $540,000 in food and drink for uh, lawmakers. That's a lot of BLTs. That's a lot. That is a lot of food and drink. We had two individual lawmakers over the first seven months that received over $5,000 in disclosed food and drink purchases from lobbyists. And those are record numbers. We've been tracking this for a long time. And, 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 and we kind of thought going into this year, you know, a few months in, people were saying, these, these lawmakers are receiving a lot of free food. So we weren't totally surprised when we got those numbers, but uh, it, they, they were uh, quite larger than what we've seen before. I think the top, the, the one getting the most was a term-limited state rep named Brent Iden yes. from the Kalamazoo area. Yeah, so the tr he, was, he was number one, and the trend that we saw getting back to the committee discussion, which is a bit in the weeds, but is kind of important for people to understand, uh, going into this session, the House set up a new committee called the Ways and Means Committee that is now in charge of basically vetting bills that come out of all the other committees. So before a bill out of one committee that's approved by that committee can go to the floor, it goes through this House, Way House Ways and Means Committee, which is a very powerful committee. So the two lawmakers that have received the most in food and drink so far from lobbyists are the chair of the Ways and Means Committee and the vice chair of the Ways and Means Committee, because these are incredibly powerful positions now. I mean, I even had situations that, um, I mean, I, I, it would just shock me where I would see legislators that would, I'd hear them say, you know, oh, I don't have any lunch plans, so let's just go over to, and they'd name a fancy restaurant, and they would just show up and basically just sort of scope out lobbyists, knowing that their meal would be paid for. And they did it with, you know, just... Like, this is just routine. Gives bottom feeder a whole new connotation. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Are there, are there legislators, Craig, who refuse to play in this? I mean, there are definitely lawmakers who are receiving no free food and drink from the lobbyists, from what we can tell from the disclosures. But it seems the wide majority of them participate in this to one extent or another. And some of these meetings, you know, we should say some of these meetings are informative. You know, if you're on the Education Policy Committee and you're meeting with lobbyists for the school board association or something, that could be an informative meeting. And, and these lawmakers argue that uh, these meetings are part of doing their job. If you're on this committee that touches on all these policies, you have to get information from somewhere. I think the important thing for the public to understand is um, there's a lot more to this legislative process than just the votes that you see on the House floor, and it's important to understand that and take an interest in what is shaping all of these decisions. It wasn't Mark Twain who said that legislation like sausage is something you don't want to see being made. It, uh, uh, but you know, are there, you know, when I was a reporter, the, my rule was sort of that you know, if the mayor wanted to have invited me to lunch to talk about his new sewage plant, I'd offer to pay, and if he said, no, I'll buy a BLT, that's fine. And that, that was sort of, that made sense. But this is sort of out of all proportion. 
Yeah, and, then, and there's also difference. I mean, as Craig talks about school groups, I did a lot of work with education, education groups. Um, and, you know, okay, you know, having some donuts and coffee. Um, these are not, that's mostly these are not well-heeled groups. As right, I mean, those are, you know, teachers and school boards, what have you. Um, but then you look at, uh, you know, people that are, courting people on the energy, um, the energy right. committee or the banking committee. Yeah. And there's just no comparison to what right. the banking association will put out in terms of, you know, tickets and, um, you know, lavish suites, um, you know, to watch games and things like that. You know, now, are there ethical rules about what legislators can do, can accept? Does the legislature have its own rules? Uh, I mean, the, the rules for the House and the Senate are very uh, <laughs> quiet on the issue of dealing with lobbyists. I mean, there are certain laws. Uh, there are not supposed to be gifts being made from a lobbyist to a lawmaker over a certain amount. I think it's like $65. Uh, there are a plethora of ways to get around that gift right. limit. Lawmakers will tell you there are limits. Uh, there are limits on the amount of undisclosed food that lawmakers are supposed to be taking. There's limits on uh, the amount of undisclosed financial transactions that are that are out there. But I mean, a lot of our laws focus on the disclosure, not on kind of the ethical. Uh, uh, is this affecting the policy question? Mm, it, uh, now. Going back to the, the whole nature of campaign financing, the, the U.S. Supreme Court, January 2010, Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission said essentially there could be no limits on giving. So we're sort of stuck there if we don't have a constitutional amendment or a, a Supreme Court decision reversing it. However, they said specifically that states can require uh, all sources of money to be disclosed. But Michigan doesn't do that. Well, yeah, so Citizens United said, said very specifically that uh, that decision said that there can be no limits on independent spending. Right. And if you read the opinion, Justice Kennedy says in the opinion, you know, there's going to be transparency in this and shareholders can react to the uh, operations of corporate entities, uh, you know, after seeing how much they're spending. So, you know, what's happened since 2010 is who gets to decide what is independent? It's the state lawmakers and the office holders get to set that definition of what is independent spending and what isn't. And then this issue of transparency, you know, what we've seen at the state level and at the federal level and in other states is that, you know, you have corporate entities that are known, people know Consumers Energy, they know Walmart, they know Home Depot. Um, those entities, you know, give some, but what's happening more and more often is you have corporate entities that are raising money from somewhere else that are getting more heavily involved and don't have to disclose where their money is coming from. And we've seen um, PACs on both sides of the aisle that used to disclose the individual donors that supported them. I'm thinking of, in this case, you know, Right to Life and Planned Parenthood. They both used to disclose all of their individual donors and give money to candidates and spend independently. And both of them have shifted a lot of their efforts to super PACs that take money from nonprofits that don't disclose. And this is, they're just two examples of a trend that's happening time and time again. Now, when the, we, we talk a lot about dark money. How is dark money defined? Well, I mean, you see these interlocking webs where, you know, the, the um, as Craig is talking about, these um, super PACs aggregating large amounts of money and then giving to another super PAC to another super PAC. And basically, when you want to try to follow that web, I mean, you just end up in a rabbit hole. Um, it's like the epitome of darkness um, because you simply cannot 
follow that thread to a logical conclusion. Now, Craig, if I wanted to give, if Ellen was running again, I wanted to give her money directly, I would, that would have to be reported. It would yeah. show on, and what's the limit that I could give her? Well, when she ran for Congress, the limit was $2,700 per election cycle if you're an individual. I think that's gone up a little bit for 2020. Um, if she was running for the state legislature, the limit in 2018 was $1,000 from an individual per election cycle. But so-called groups playing issue-oriented ads can conceal their donors. Uh, yeah, they can conceal their donors, super PACs. These are the super PACs are these groups operating independently of candidates and these issue ad groups that can, in the state of Michigan, work with candidates more closely. Both of those entities can accept unlimited contributions. So this is no matter what your beliefs are on campaign finance, this is the fact of what's happening. More and more money is pouring in through entities that can raise unlimited amounts and can often raise it from undisclosed sources than we've seen previously. So correct me if I'm wrong, the rule is that, let's say Ellen was running again, pick on poor Ellen since she's here, <laughs> and I formed a, a group called People for Puppies and Kittens. Mm -hmm. And I got tons of funding from the Ku Klux Klan, other white supremacist groups, and I wrote, rat, rat, had these really lush TV commercials saying, we love America, you know, we love everything about America. Ellen Lipton doesn't love America. As long as I don't say don't vote for her, I can do that, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the differentiating line. It's called express advocacy. If you don't right. expressly advocate for someone's election uh, in the state of Michigan running for state office, there's little to anything to require you to disclose where your money's coming from, or even, which is also important, how much you're spending can be difficult to track. There's little to nothing for groups like ours or journalists out there that track uh, political spending to figure out how much money is being spent on groups that fund mailers. You could be getting tons of mailers, and there's no way for us to track it. I mean, Facebook now has an ad library that provides a little bit of information about who's buying ads on Facebook that is somewhat helpful, but, but previously there was little to nothing nothing to track digital ad spending by some of these groups. Right. And keep in mind that for a lot of what I'll call, you know, down ballot races, you don't go up on TV. No. Um, you know, city council, um, school board. Right. I mean, th those are really hot areas in certain areas, particularly where you've got charter schools that are trying to, you know, come into a particular area and they'll start dumping a ton of money in a school board race. Um, to influence the board in determining whether or not to allow charter schools in their community. Mm. Um, and a lot of that is completely, it's completely dark because it's all done in print. Um, and it's very hard to figure out who's, who's, who's behind these mailers. Now, there have been attempt to, attempts to make people more accountable. But I saw just the other day, uh, Senate Majority Le Leader Mike Shirky said that he thought requiring financial disclosure for legislators was a bunch of crap. Uh, yeah, he's been out there kind of opposed to bills. These are financial disclosure bills that are about lawmakers' personal financial right. information. It's about uh, these bills are attempting to put information out there to screen against conflicts of interest. We are one of two states that don't have any type of personal financial disclosure. Uh, the federal government, when Ellen or others run for Congress, they have to file a ton of information about their, fi their financial resources, who pays them income outside of their government employment, 
what properties they own. It's really intense. Uh, what they're proposing in the state of Michigan is much less intense. And, and, and Senate Majority Leader Shirky has been consistently pushing back against this. His tone on it has changed uh, from time to time, depending on what week it is. And there, there are lawmakers in the Senate that still think they have a chance to get those bills through. But it, uh, you know, that all remains to be seen. The House hasn't voted on this yet. It passed out of committee. And it they, seems to be a requirement of being the Senate Majority Leader because when I was there, the two prior Senate Majority Leaders um, Arlen Meekoff. Uh, and then before that, uh, Randy Richardville. Right. Um, they also were sort of the self-imposed backstop. Um, and so I don't know if that sort of, you know, become a, a sort of, you know, requirement of being the Senate Majority Leader um, these days. But that does seem to be where the, uh, the wall is drawn is in the Senate. We'll stop um, any type, you know, whatever comes out of the House, we'll deal with and we'll stop in the Senate. How do you decide... Craig, you're a one-man operation, pretty much. You have a board, and I think we should. I wanted to mention that the board. This is not a partisan group. You've got Republicans as well as Democrats on your board. We have an equal amount of former Republican office holders and former Democratic office holders, and then we have a bunch of other people that do all kinds of different works. And I, I honestly don't know their political leanings right. because uh, we don't talk about that uh, at our board meetings, and 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 really, we're just focused on. Uh, trying to shine light on 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 what's going on with with influence and money in politics because there are fewer people in the capital doing this and it's becoming very important work. This is probably a politically incorrect metaphor, but you're just you only one general customer and there's a lot of Indians. How do you pick your targets? How do you pick where to concentrate your research? I mean, we we look for we look for stories that are going to inform people. We look to do reports that are going to inform people that are going to have an impact, that are going to get people's interest. I mean, there are lots of things that are very wonky that we could put out and sometimes do that people are like, this is over my head. Um, we, we, try to, we try to attach on to issues that people care about already, whether you're on this side of the aisle or that side of the aisle, and you have a curiosity of what's driving this issue, who's funding the other side of this. I mean, we all, you know, I personally have a list on my phone of all of these things I want to look into, and a lot of times we're looking into five things at the same time. Sometimes they all come to the head at the same time, but it, we try to look into as many things as possible. And the internet, you use the internet primarily? The way we send out our materials? Right. Yeah, we, we are very active on social media. We have an email list. We email out the pieces that we do to our email list. And then one thing that we are, pride ourselves on is doing collaborative reports with traditional media outlets. We've worked with the Detroit News, the Detroit Free Press, TV stations, Bridge Magazine, radio stations. It's, uh, it's a really rewarding uh, thing to do. Ellen, let's say, let's imagine they repealed term limits. You go back and become Speaker of the House. What would be your, now that you understand all this, not that you didn't before, what would be your top priority in changing Michigan's laws and, in order to minimize some of this outrageous stuff? Well, I think, you know, first of all, you need to have um, a more robust disclosure um, in real time. Um, you don't want uh, the ability to sort of, you know, ha you know, have disclosures due after people are already making their decisions. So you really want people to know, you know, at the time they're making their decision. Um, you want to have um, the, uh, the financial disclosures that are uh, required at the federal level uh, for candidates um, because... You know, people can say, I'll recuse myself or I have a conflict of interest. But, you know, sometimes what's one person conflict, what, you know, what's one person's conflict of interest isn't another person. Right. So you really want, you know, to know ahead of time. 
um, if someone has a potential conflict. Um, and then lastly, you really want to have more robust limits. Um, you know, you, you should not be able to go to a lesser and lesser number of people and get bigger and bigger chunks of money. Um, I mean, there's value in stating your case to as right. many small donors as possible. Um, I mean, that is sort of the basis of democracy. Uh, Craig, if somebody is listening and want, is wondering, I wonder who's giving money. I wonder who's funding my representative or my congressman. How can they go to your website and find out? Yeah, so if you go to mcfn.org, we have a follow the money page that's at the top. You click on that, and we track uh, contributors to all members of the state legislature and elected officials at the state level in Michigan. We track giving to their campaigns. We track as much giving as we can to other accounts that they raise money through. That uh, A lot of times what you'll see in Lansing is people think, I can go look up my lawmakers' top donors by looking up the top donors to their campaign. But if you're um, you know, the, st the state house speaker or the Senate majority leader, you're raising much more money through what's called a leadership pack. Um, this is a pack where people give you uh, unlimited amounts of money and you give it to colleagues in the Senator House that you support. These individuals are raising a lot more money through those PACs than they are through their campaigns. So to get a real read on who's donating to your lawmaker, you have to look at the PACs as well. And we try to simplify that and put it all on our site. Uh, we so track, it's a one-stop shop. For that's what it tries to be. There's some information we can't get, but we put everything we can on that page. What else should what else should I've asked you that I didn't? I always like asking people that who know a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, you know, that's a great question. That is, there there are so many different things that we 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 could touch on here. We've touched on a lot of them, but uh, I think I think the important thing that I try to talk to people about is if you kind of check out of this conversation, right. and there are, media, there, there are media outlets that have checked out of this conversation about influence, there are a lot of people in the state who say, you know, I, I've got a busy life, I don't have time to think about this, and this is right. kind of complex. If you check out of this conversation, you're checking out of an important conversation about how government is working, and this is a government that is there to do uh, the people's will. I mean, that, that's, what it's, that's what it's set up to do. And, and when you check out, you're kind of just saying, um, I'm, checking out of it is giving up a lot of uh, ability to access information about what's driving decisions that are going to affect you. And these decisions affect everyone. I mean, there are interest groups in Lansing. Ellen can speak to this on just about every career field you can think of. And they're all very active. Right. And, you know, what I would always tell my constituents is, you know, knowledge is power. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, yes, you can learn something and get very right. overwhelmed. Or you can learn something and realize, well, that gives me power to then ask an intelligent question. Right. So if you're going to a candidate forum, you know, I would always want people to ask me, you know, where is your money coming from? Exactly. You know, I mean, if you're afraid to answer the question, or if someone is dodging the question, that's valuable knowledge to have as an educated voter as well. Knowledge or if somebody knowledge. tells you that I'm opposed to the new Gordie Howe Bridge, and you look up and they've gotten scads of money from the owner of the Ambassador Bridge, you have an idea about their motivation. That's right. You that, can start that, connecting yeah. the dots yourself. Now, just make it clear, they can't take this money and put it in their bank account and spend This is money for their campaign. Yes, yes. But, uh, but still, it, it, there's sort of a vicious, vicious cir circle here. So uh, how do you not get depressed? How do you get not... How do you not uh, yeah, feel that you're bailing the ocean with a spoon? I never feel depressed about this. I mean, I think what drives me is, uh, 
you know, every day I get to get, get to get up and do work that I really think is having an impact. I get to tell stories that aren't aren't being told by others. I get to um, uh, really challenge. You know, that's the amazing thing about living in this country. I get to ask really uh, tough questions of state office holders, and they can choose not to answer them, and that's fine. But I get to ask the question, and I right. get to report on what I find. So that's cool. And what to what Ellen said, you know, I had I gave a presentation once, and at the end, someone said. You can't uh, do any better if you don't know any better. <laughs> and that's what we're trying to do is to inform people about what's going on. If people don't have the information, um, that's a problem for democracy for sure. Exactly. No- knowledge is power. Do you want to have the final word? Um, you know, I would just like to leave people with that, that, um, you know, you, you don't have to um, give up your life um, and your interest to be an educated voter. Um, I mean, there are all kinds of resources out there um, to help you navigate, um, but start very, very specific. I mean, you know, test the waters with, you know, a local school board race or a local city, city council race exactly. and just find out, you know, who's, who's, who's funding your campaign. Um, you may be very surprised and heartened by what you find out. You may be very uh, surprised and angry, um, but at least you'll be a knowledgeable voter. But that's interesting. Well, I find this fascinating. Somebody once said money was the most alluring thing of all, and I don't know anyone who's not interested in money. But uh, And I think uh, we owe both of you a debt of gratitude, especially you, Craig, for devoting your life to uh, exposing this. So thank you very much. And by the way, I want to thank everyone also who donated to help fund the production costs of this podcast, including Desiree Cooper, who was once a lawyer and then became a suburb columnist for the Free Press, editor of the Metro Time, and now, now is writing novels. And Robert Sudler, a distinguished professor of law at Constitutional Law at Wayne State University Law School, and now an assistant attorney general. If you'd like to help keep these podcasts going, I'd be thrilled if you could send a contribution to me via the Zing Media Group, 186 North Main Street, Plymouth, Michigan, 48170, or message me on Facebook or via my blog for more details. Well, that's about it for today, except for my signature essay coming up. Also, please check out my, my website, as I've said, lessonveryinc.com. Inc. as an ink pen and click the button and subscribe to both these blog, my blog and these podcasts. The price is right, free, and listen to our next episode soon. Catch up on those you missed and feel free to send me a message. In the, to- in the meantime, I'm off to go figure out our next podcast, which will be about two things that are going to play a critical difference in our lives in the next couple of years. This is Jack Lessonberry with Politics and Prejudice the podcast. See you soon. David Bonner was a distinguished congressman who represented Macomb County in Washington for more than a quarter of a century and rose to become House Majority Whip. He told me once after he was first elected in a close race in 1976, he was horrified to learn that his campaign had spent $36,000. Now that's about $160,000 in today's money, but that wouldn't even get you a nomination for a legislative seat in 2020. You can spend $10 million to win a swing congressional seat these days and then have to raise that money again every two years until they beat you or you get sick of it. A couple of years ago, I heard from a brilliant young woman who worked for the Kresge Foundation in Troy. She had a doctorate, was an expert in economics, and had worked abroad, and she was married and had a young son. She wanted to make a difference in the state and wanted to know if I thought it would be a good idea if she ran for an open seat in the Michigan legislature. Two things were instantly clear to me. One was that she had superb credentials, 
would have vastly enriched the caliber of that body. The other was that she hadn't any idea what she was up against. So I asked, do you have $300,000 to spend? She looked at me like I was nuts. That's the minimum you need to have a chance in that district. More if you had a hotly contested primary, which I think you will, I said. Not surprisingly, she decided not to run. There's something wrong with this picture. We're moving towards is a legislature that consists of people with a lot of special interest money or a big political machine behind them and a disproportionate share of retirees. There's nothing we can do quickly about the Citizens United decision. We need another Supreme Court decision reversing it, which is unlikely in our lifetimes, or an amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which would be an immensely difficult task. However, what we can do, at least, is find out where the money behind these candidates is coming from so that we know, to be blunt, who owns those who would lead us. The Michigan Campaign Finance Network is doing a superb job of that. You can see their work at mcfn.org. But they need more notice and more resources, and donating to them is certainly a good idea. There's something else we can do. When the Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to four that there could be essentially no limits on campaign spending, they specifically said that states could require full disclosure of where such money comes from. But the Michigan legislature still allows a source of a lot of contributions to be hidden from public view, so-called dark money. That's something the legislature could change, although most Republicans remain completely opposed. Maybe that'll change after gerrymandering ends after the 2020 census. That is, if enough citizens realize what's being done to them and make their wishes known. I'm Jack Lesenberry. Hope you'll listen again to me soon.